Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to Nature Biotechnology's first Rounders podcast. My name is Brady Huggett, and I'm the host of this show. Um, one thing to say first, our podcast series, Hope Lies in Dreams, about the life of Stan Crook, about the history of Anisense, about the company he founded, and the terrible neurologic disease known as spinal muscular atrophy, has published all chapters. All 10 chapters are out now. You can find the podcast off the homepage of Nature Biotechnology. You can also find it wherever you find your podcasts by searching for Hope, Lies, and Dreams, and you'll find it. I think it's a really important story about biotech, about antisense, and about the needs of patients. If you haven't listened to it yet, it lives in the podcast ether of the world. So if you have interest in that, find it and give a listen. Okay, now on to first rounders. The guest today is Lita Nelson. She is the former director of the Technology Licensing Office at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, better known as MIT. And it's a job that she first took in 1986. So she has had a direct hand in reshaping Kendall Square and Cambridge through uh, the startup culture that has come out of MIT. MIT is a leading practitioner of technology transfer, and I wanted to pick her brain on what does it mean to do technology transfer well? What is required to foster an innovative and startup culture what is necessary to instill it and to create it? And can it be created? There are many places that wish to have a life science startup culture, a bioeconomy based around innovation and startups. Is it possible to actually do that, just create it? And if so, what might be the elements, the ingredients that are needed? Yeah, I wanted to talk to her about all that. And I was really looking forward to the conversation, frankly, because um, I just wanted to know. I, there's, I had my own thoughts, and I wanted to bounce them off her and, and see what she said. So that's what we talked about. We also talked about how she grew up. Uh, she grew up in uh, in New York, and she went to MIT. Uh, she went there for undergrad, her master's. She left. She came back. She got the job in the in the TLO. And I think if you cut her open, she sort of bleeds the the red, black, and white of MIT. But the other thing that I want to tell you is this was face to face. When when I got in touch with her, I said, you know, I, are you coming through New York? You know, there's we have processes in place. I can get you into our studio. We're both vaccinated. We can fill out the paperwork. And she said, no, I'm not. Um, but I'd like to do it face-to-face. Is it possible that you could come here? And, and uh, I said, yeah. So I just did an up and back real quick to Boston, brought my equipment, and I met her on the campus, uh, the MIT campus. So that's, I was almost, do I remember how to do a face-to-face interview? I wasn't even sure, but uh, apparently I do. And we did, and it was a, it was a good talk. I really enjoyed uh, picking her brain on this. Just a, what a wealth of knowledge. Yeah, I think, I think that's all you need to know. So here it is, your first Rounders podcast with Lita Nelson. Listen up. Comfortable. I'm comfortable. All right, I think we're uh, I think we're ready to go. 
just so just in general like being back here yeah. does it feel like some sort of homecoming you spent so many years here well first of all i'm back and forth anyway yeah but what feels very interesting right this minute is that um is the construction going on because i started as a freshman here a million years ago mm-hmm. And Kendall Square was nothing but some old warehouses and rubber factories and one greasy diner. You know, that that's a, I, I had Henry Tremere on this show. I think that was the first person I ever had on the show. Okay. And he was, so Genzyme, right? And he was saying that when he got his start in Genzyme, which was, I think, in the 80s. Yeah, well, it, I'm talking about 1960. Oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> he, he said even then... It was kind of a red light district almost, Cambridge, where, well, where, where, where Genzyme was. it was naughty. It was grubby. And it, literally old factories, rubber yeah. factories or gidgets or whatever. Whatever they're making, yeah. Yeah, and in fact, when I joined my, when I graduated with my master's degree and joined my master's thesis company, we were on the second floor of an old warehouse a few blocks from here. Yeah. Corner of, in fact, very close to where El Nylum is now. Oh, really? That big fancy building. Yeah, their new one. That's gorgeous, right? Yeah. Um, but you didn't, are you not a New Englander or are you? No, I'm from Ozone Park, New York. Oh, okay. How did you, just did, did how did you get your start? Was there anyone in your family that was interested in science? Well, my father was a self-made engineer and I grew up in Ozone Park and our family had no money. And so my father says he had moved into the confines of New York City because colleges were free there. And so I had assumed all along I was going to go to either Queens or CCNY. Uh-huh. And I didn't go to a special high school because back then, except for Bronx Science, right. which was too far away, uh, Brooklyn Tech and Stuyvesant were only for boys. My uh-huh. bro- both my brothers got into Brooklyn. Yeah, the, I should say these are like notoriously uh, elite schools in New York City. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Science schools. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I went to an ordinary high school, but it was actually had some fabulous teachers, and uh, I filled out the national merit thing. Nobody in my high school had ever won it, and there was also was literally a postcard, a General Motors National. They gave 100 in the United States. So I filled in the postcard, and I filled in the forms, and I got both of them. Then I had to figure out where to go to college. So those are scholarships? Full scholarships, in my case, because my family had no money. Okay, well, I wanted to... So your father was a self-made engineer. Engineer and a multi-failed entrepreneur. Mechanical or chemical? Electrical. He Ah. taught himself electrical engineering. And he used to read textbooks. But uh, by the time transistors came along... My father was born in 1896, so Uh you were talking about somebody who learned from crystal radios on so that, I guess what I guess my question is: How did the family survive? What was his? Was he making a living doing he, this? Yeah, he. At the time I was a child, he was making television antennas out of his own design in a garage down the street, and then selling and them. selling them, yeah, door to door, as if this well, might be a better. Well, not door to door, but uh, the equivalent of an antenna store or a television store or something quite a bit larger 
And somehow they worked very well, but technology overcame them. But so he would go into the store and say, I've, I've made a better mousetrap. He'd mouse go into a, of... the equivalent of Best Buy, some big yeah. place in a town, and say, here it is. And I don't know how he managed to sell them. Because that's amazing. So he'd say, I made this. I think it's better than what you're selling. Try to Here's sell it Here's why, yeah. yeah. That's, yeah. that's fascinating. Okay, so the, uh, already... I can see where this might lead you in your life. This, this is sort of an entrepreneurial thing that he's doing. Yes, in a way, but if I were honest, it led me the other way. How do I find a career that is both reasonably well-paying and interesting? And that's why, although I got very high scores in SATs in math, I got even higher scores in English uh-huh. because I can write. But it wasn't that engineering fascinated me. It was that I could do it. There weren't that many jobs that women envisioned they could do. Uh, and I wouldn't be poor. So what did your mother? She was a. Did she work outside the home? No. No. Okay. So, but what was her intelligence level like? Because it's see, I, I, she I'm was asking, highly intelligent and mentally ill, yeah, which was part of the family problem. The family history. Well, sometimes those two things go hand in hand, right? Yeah. Well, no, it was schizophrenia. Oh. So, uh, her illness and paying for hospitals and yeah. Okay, so, but so you're, you're in high school. So I wanted safety, financial safety, but also something that would keep my restless mind busy. So my father talked about engineering. He introduced me to one of his friends who'd been a chemical engineer and made a gazillion dollars, but that, I wasn't looking to get rich. I was looking to be safe. Right. So this career, salary, and something that wasn't boring. And did you, what about siblings? Did you have siblings? Uh, two younger brothers. And were they? Uh, uh, <laughs> they were both adventurous. And uh, one of them went off to Australia, actually Tasmania. Wow. Australia was too inter- ordinary. <laughs> and the other one joined the Navy and then became got into the stock and insurance selling business. Okay. He was adventurous. He was one of these people who could go down to zero and pick himself up again and start over. So would you would you consider yourself also adventurous, even if you were looking for safety? I'm adventurous in that if I get bored, I've got to find something else to do. Yeah. I, I, I'm driven, you know, I... I used to stay in jobs about four years before I'd get bored or frustrated or both, and I was good enough that I could find another job. Right. So when I came to MIT for the technology licensing office, I did. I wasn't hired as director. It was a tiny office, and they were MIT was a restart for them. I figured it'd be a four-year gig, and 30 years later. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but I, I want to go back to this, you being in high school, and, and, and your father had sort of introduced you at least to the idea of engineering. Uh, engineering and math. Chemical. Remember, and math. if you were a girl that was really good in math, that was by itself unusual. Okay, so that, did that, when you're doing really well at math, are you thinking, all right, then I might have a chance to have this sort of thing for a career? Uh, 
Yeah. I mean, I thought I might, you know, little girls, what do they know? I'm going to be a teacher because I was good at school. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I didn't grow up in a neighborhood where people went to college. My father did back in 1917 before he joined the Navy to, for the war to end all wars. Uh -huh. He was a, uh, an idealist. Um, people in my, I may probably be the only girl in my, within one or two years in my grade school and went on to college. And I was lucky because of where I lived, I could go to a different high school from where most everybody else was. I had a choice and I lucked out. I went to a one with excellent teachers and with kids coming from other neighborhoods who were, let's say, academically competitive. But you know, you say that not many people, not many girls are good at math or seen as being good at math at that time. Did you feel like you were this novel thing? No. I just did it. But you, you were like, you want to go to college and I'm going to fill out for these grants. This, uh... Uh, right. That was with the kind of thing you'd buy a lottery ticket because yeah. I had no role models for it. Yeah. Somebody said you should fill, look, probably. Yeah, well, I took the SATs, uh -huh. okay? Everybody takes the SATs. Yeah. You score well on the SATs. They send you this long thing to fill out. And as for the other one, it's a postcard, I figured, what the hell? <laughs> put, put, it, put it in the mail. Yeah, exactly. Well, and then they sent me a long thing to fill out yeah. with your SAT scores. Yeah. All right, so then when you get both of these back positive, saying, okay, you, you know, yeah. we're going to be able to produce some funding, you thought, well, I'm going to college then. Well, I knew I was going to college because Queens was free. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. So I, I figured I'd live at home and go to college. And I got a, New York State gave these $400 Regents scholarships based on your Regents score. And I don't know, I think between them I might have gotten six or $800. So I had money to pay for books. And I was gonna go to college the way I went to high school. But then when, when these grants come in, you think, now I'm gonna shoot for the sky, I yeah, don't know. Yeah, well, first I went and looked at, because I didn't know engineering schools, so somebody, my father knew MIT. So first we went and looked and say, does MIT let girls in? Because a lot of schools didn't. didn't. Yep. Strangely enough, MIT, in its way, has been co-ed, it's one of the earliest co-ed schools around, uh, because from its founding. They didn't have very many, and uh, I mean, one or two each year for, for years, and then a few more. When I came, there were 900 guys and 22 women. Oh my God. <laughs> I used to joke outnumbered one in 50. <laughs> I think it's kind of nifty with 49 fellas and me. It wasn't hard to get a date. I would think so. Nerdy my girls. <laughs> So that you're, you're like you're saying MIT was not um, there weren't very many women here not because they were not allowed but because there just weren't applicants and the applicants no they didn't have by then it was because they didn't have the facilities to house them uh -huh. we used to live freshman year in a little brownstone house way over by Boston University across the river and down yep and in a in an era 
when college girls had curfews and et cetera, after freshman year, you were on your own, go rent an apartment. <laughs> so you're 19, living... 18, yeah. 18, wow. Living by yourself in Boston, going to MIT. Well, living with roommates. Yeah. All right, so then when you get to school, like, all right, I'm going to be a chemical engineering major. In fact, okay. that is that is what you got for your undergrad. Right. And master's, and it was... So you rolled your undergraduate right into a master's program? Yeah. So That's it's ordinary. Five years or so. Yeah. Right. Wow, okay. Five and a half. Uh, it was shock. School had always been easy for me. I mean, I studied. I, yeah. did, I was very serious, but it was easy. Uh, and I got here, and whew, remember, class average was a C. Uh, I'd certainly never gotten a B in my life. Uh-huh. Uh, I didn't get any Cs. I did get all Bs. Uh, there were guys... Freshman, you know, talking about PSSC physics, what's that? Because in my high school, the advanced placement courses, the first year was my year, and they gave them in history and English, which was nice. The teachers were outstanding. But so I was thrown. I didn't have any, you know, I didn't have any calculus, and I, uh, but I survived, and then I did very, very well. I graduated first in my class in chemistry. So your freshman year, you get B's, and you're well, my yeah. You're horrified that you're getting B's and not A's, right? And then you ended Far up first up. in your class. Yeah. Good God. Yeah. <laughs> so the, when you graduate with this master's degree, you're thinking, all right, well, I'm I'm going to be a chemical engineer. Yeah. Even though I was told that uh, girls can't be chemical engineers, I you know all sorts of what are you going to do when you graduate very strange interviews from companies, very strange. Like like what? Uh, can you travel? Sure. By then I was married, but As if would you your weren't... husband let you travel? Oh, I see, I see. Yeah. Yes, with a man. Oh, come on. <laughs> but I jo- ended up joining my professor's startup company based on his research. So what year is this? 66. 66? So uh, I'm fascinated by this. So already there was some level of startup culture at MIT in 66? Yes. This is what makes it so much easier because unlike if you take Harvard, Princeton, Yale, okay, they were set up to train clergy and than to train gentlemen. And only very late, not very late into the sciences, but in terms of getting involved with, you know, the dirty fingerprints of industry that might soil the ivory tower. I mean, even into the mid-70s, Derek Bach, president of Harvard, was writing books on how dangerous it might be. To intertwine those two. Yeah. Now, MIT was set up, and if you go to the Great Dome, you can see it, to bring science and the useful arts to industry and agriculture. So the faculty, back when this was really an advanced trade school to teach the best industrial processes, were interacting with industry all the time. By the 19... 50s, 
faculty were, it, it wasn't organized in any form, and it didn't owe anything to the Institute, but back then and still, everywhere in the US, professors in theory have one day a week, 20% of their time to devote to outside professional activities. They can be writing a book, uh, editing a scientific journal, mm -hmm. or consulting to a company. And although there wasn't much of it, there were even thinking about patents back, the earliest MIT patent was 1932, and it was the Van de Graaff generator. Huh. Uh, I think it's one of the earliest ones. And uh, so by the time I got asked to interview for the, for the job at MIT when I was a, a technology licensing us a lot later, and we're talking about 1986. Well, it was an important piece of legislation called the Bayh-Dole yeah. Act. Yeah, yeah, And MIT was part of it. And so by then, professors were beginning to think not only about patenting and maybe some company will buy my patent and pay me, but independent of the Bayh-Dole Act or patents owned by MIT, we're starting to form companies. So, so, so you work at this company called Amicon, right? That's your right. your master's, uh, when you're working thesis, your master's yeah. thesis professor. Alan company. Michaels. Alan yeah. Michaels, right. So you did that for I don't know how long. That's a ultra-filtration company, I think yeah. it was? Yeah, and it's now, I was there probably six years. After that, there's some hop and skip and jump that on and then I went to work for Millipore. They're both in that area. area. Right. After so after Millipore, you got the MBA. No. Uh, before. During my time at Millipore, I took a year off. Okay, you came back to MIT and got an MBA from the Sloan School, right? As a Sloan Fellow. Yeah. Yes. Okay. And and then so I feel like at that point you must have been thinking, well, I'm going to actually work in industry or maybe run a company. <sighs> yeah. But it was very interesting. Again, it was a female thing, but it was also that the Sloan Fellows Program, which is a big, in those days, was the chosen sons of the large corporations, and they were sent, and they were paid for, and tuition was done, and all that. And then there were a few mavericks who sponsored themselves. And I wanted to do that program because it was a one-year accelerated program. Uh-huh. And so it was only a year's loss of income. Right, okay. So I did that. Well, they invited me to do that. I, I had applied to a different program, and then they... At MIT. Yeah, and then they looked at what I had and said, we need you, come into this one. All right, because I want to ask about this, too. You just said, because it was a female thing, meaning that there weren't any women in the MBA program then? <sighs> there weren't very many. And the reason I was invited into the other one, into the fellows program, uh, they said, you know, the women in the class, many of whom were sent by not-for-profit institutions, sisters, nuns, uh -huh. he said, they're getting a reputation for not being good at math. And we know you can handle We'd the like math. We'd like someone good at math in here. I mean, I had enough of a... Thing. I was paying for it, but uh, I had enough of a track record they might have let me in anyway, although they didn't do many Mavericks. 
turns out there wasn't any math in the program past. <laughs> if you could still remember your advanced algebra. You were good. I was the math, math whiz. With, uh, there were a couple other guys, particularly the ones from different countries. Uh, anyway, but but did this? So this is already going to MIT, and now you're back at MIT in this uh, this MBA program. Did you get tired of being this sort of not lone, but one of the few women in amongst all these men? Ah, uh, it was funny. It wasn't so much. There were four other women, but it wasn't so much that that was the problem. The problem was. Uh, the straight arrow chosen businessmen. They were very conventional, even in what they ate when we went on, on foreign trips. So I ended up making best friends with a French guy and an Indonesian guy. <laughs> we still know each other. Uh, what do you mean when you say they were conventional? Meaning they just were buttoned down? They, they were... were buttoned down. They didn't talk up. They didn't challenge teachers. They didn't do any of the things that were taken for granted in this school. I see. All right. And so, and every once in a while you'd get a giggle because we were fellows. And you're not a fellow. I get well, it. Well, I'm not a fellow by the... Uh, <laughs> like... uh, and you know it's just not a very good joke anyway yeah yeah uh so i found it culturally difficult and then i said to hell with it and just buckled down and didn't worry about the social life yeah yeah well that doesn't sound like much fun no were you married at this point yeah yeah you were okay so you had a social life outside the school plus i'm local yeah so i had all my old friends and all i could easily just buckle down and live my life and go to class and do my homework. Yeah, for a year. It was just a, a year, year, right? Yeah. Just a year. Okay. And then you've got this MBA. And I, were you a consultant went, after that? No, I went back to Millipore. Oh, you did? I wasn't okay. very happy. Got another nothing job. Really was unhappy and saying to myself, gee, I can't switch again. I'll look like somebody. Who... And then somebody told me about this job, the redo. I didn't realize how much it was a redo of the licensing office. Somebody said there's this opening, and I'll say they'll want a lawyer. And they said, no, they don't do. Law- they aren't doing lawyers. That's my thought. Was they wanted like someone to handle the paperwork to? Get well, the no, somebody started. to be a patent attorney and also as a patent attorney to do license negotiations. But what happened was that MIT had come to realize it was a black hole. Nobody answered the phone. The professors hated the office. The outside world hated the office. They had to do. So at that time, now this was six years after Bidole, Mm -hmm. Stanford had had a a well-operated office for several years before that. And so MIT got the director of the Stanford office to come on a sabbatical year and redo the MIT office in the Stanford model. Was that... Catherine Koo? No, it was a guy named Nils Ramers. Oh. And Kathy Koo uh, was, Nils traveled a lot, whatever. She held down the office, really mm-hmm. ran it. But why, why did you think that was going to be an interesting job? I was uh, very unhappy where I was, uh, some little place. Um, and I thought, what the hell, it'll be four years. It's yeah, always exactly four right. years. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and besides which, and this was rather funny, Nils uh, 
nice guy, but he had his strong opinions and capabilities of engineers, or capabilities of women was bad enough, but capabilities of engineers. He looked at me and said, you're an engineer. Engineers can't write. I said, that's not true. I've always been the writer everywhere I have worked or done. I've always been the one who can write easily and clearly. So anyway, they hired me and I came in as just an individual contributor because that's what I wanted. The other thing I did, which I don't know why I did it, but when I came in, I said, I want to handle, I'll, I'll take the job if you'll give me the biotech portfolio. Oh, interesting. Because that was such an interesting yeah. hot area. Yeah. Of course, I hadn't had a biology course since I was 14 and they right. didn't teach DNA then, yeah. but I faked it well enough. Um, but so this, the idea that because it was going to be a licensing office, you would see different things all the time. That's all what appealed to you. All the time, yeah. And be working on six different things at once. I mean, one of the questions that I really had was, like, how did this, you know, M MIT is notorious for having this culture of entrepreneurship and innovation yeah. and spin-outs. So Stanford too, right? Stanford's been around right. a long time. Right. And my thought was, well, is it just because you've been doing it for so long? And partly that's true. It's true for, well, first of all, it's true because the faculty had consulted. They understood industry because industry and uh, academia are two different languages. Yeah. And if you don't really have a, it, you don't have to be a native, but you have to understand how they work, how they think. So the other reason, and this was, is still very important. As this entrepreneurship stuff, as that, you know, 10 years after Buy Dole, everybody started by the 90s, um, by which point we were doing a fair bit of it, and the startups really were the late 80s. So by the late 90s, everybody was doing it, yeah. and everybody in Europe and everywhere else was trying to do it. The one thing they do wrong is they try to make money at it. This is... This is one of the driving questions that I want to ask you. They try to make money at it. And statistically, it's like lottery tickets. It's rare to have a blockbuster. And you've got to be willing to chug along without the primary objective being money until you've done enough of it that statistically, once in a while, you get a blockbuster. Yeah. But that's a lot. Uh, if the objective is money. You're going to be much tougher negotiators, much tougher. You're going to ask a lot more. And instead of doing 50 deals, you're going to do three. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 
luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. So it's, it's almost like by asking all these questions, by being so rigorous and protecting, right. you know, with this financial gain in mind, what you actually end up doing is squashing things that might otherwise have succeeded. Absolutely. Because yeah. you give me a pile of these patents, which I used to getting, I can't tell which one's going to be hot. I might be good, pretty sure I'm pretty good at the sure losers. No way in hell, although even then you can be surprised. But I don't know which one's going to go. I can tell you with a certainty that the license that walks away, we're not going to, that company's not going to go. Yeah. So it was the idea of being sensible but generous. Not a fool, you know, you wouldn't take nothing just to get it done. And not being measured on how much you brought in in the short run. Uh, but I feel like... So, so MIT was ahead of the curve. Stanford was ahead of the curve, and some other universities were too. But as this caught on, as you said, ten years after Baidol, that did become the focus for universities, and not, not only that, but economic development boards and cities and states, as well. Okay, but the cities and states should realize that it's the local economic development and the taxes that they pay. It's your backyard turning into Kendall Square that you should be looking for, not how much the tech transfer office brings in. And they don't understand it. And it's very, very difficult to get them to understand. There's a new book out, Yeah. Uh, if you're interested in it at all. Uh, it's called From the Basement to the Dome. To the Dome. Uh-huh. That Dome. About MIT. And it talks about why the how the entrepreneurial culture came up long. Oh, I should have read it before I came here. It's a good book. It reads fast. Uh, and on the lessons learned, he, he's the first writer about this stuff that I've ever seen that really seemed to understand it because he spent so much time on this campus. Uh, and he makes that point that if you try to make money out of it, it's not going to work. But then, so when, when, so, so for instance, can we extrapolate from that all the way to countries like China. Absolutely. I don't know about, you know, I can't, as I go to different countries, you come to realize, or at least I did, that what works in one system doesn't work in another. And I really don't know enough about the Chinese system, whether it's for a while, like it had truly independent companies, but how long does it last and what does it mean? So I can't talk about China. But I can talk about Britain and France and why are they having such troubles. Britain has a tendency to 
fund something at universities that they want being done, uh-huh. and then say you better be self-sustaining in four years. So what do people do? They rapidly start to sell apples, something where they know they can bring money in because they're going to lose their jobs. As opposed to the thing they really wanted to be doing. As opposed to what the government really yeah. wants them right. to do in right. Kendall Square. Right. So it doesn't happen overnight. It no, doesn't happen it in happens to, 10 years. It has to be sustained, yeah. and the mission needs to be clear. When Susan Hockfield became president here and my boss said, you want to give a presentation to her. And we were earning good money. Uh-huh. Not enough to change the price of tuition at MIT, but money was coming in yeah. millions. But I never wanted to emphasize that. So I'd, I've never, stri- never stressed that. So I needed, I had a slide deck, and I titled it Impact Not Income. Well, it took off as a bumper sticker almost. And yeah. that's what I was supported to do. That's what my bosses wanted me to do. I, I just, uh, I just, this past summer was on this panel um, for this conference in Saudi Arabia's virtual panel, of course, mm-hmm. and we were all talking, maybe four or five of us, about entrepreneurship. And the Saudi Arabians, very astutely, are trying to shift their economy away from carbon-based oh, yeah. fossil I, fuels, right? Yeah. And they want to do biopharmaceuticals, yeah, yeah. they want to do biomanufacturing, produce their own drugs and export them, right. which is smart. But what you're saying is, you know, that is not going to be, not, not to say it's not going to work, but if you're aiming for it for the economic driver, you're going to have a tough row here to hoe. Exactly. It's tough, but it's worth doing. One of the problems in many countries is the lack of high-risk capital. Of course, right. That's the thing that sets the U.S. apart from everybody else, is this venture capital money that's available. If it's not, our model of doing things doesn't work. I have this, my God, it's going to go on the radio. I've had this dream in these countries, let's take South America. Uh Let's take Chile. There's a lot of money in Chile. But it's all tied up in families, uh-huh. rich families. And there are ma- many other countries, that's true, like Singapore, yeah. whatever. Yeah. I have this dream that the Sloan School or somebody would set up this master's degree, how to be a venture capitalist, and they'd make it very expensive and very high prestige primarily to teach the sons and daughters of these large families fortunes. And I'll bet they'd catch the disease. They can afford to take risks. Yeah. They're not going to go broke. Yeah. And if they started to say, this looks like a really interesting game, and they were taught how to evaluate startups and things, then all these schools in Chile and wherever, and I've been there, uh, that want to do it our way, you do the research, they do good research, you get the patent, or file it, maybe even have some entrepreneurship and innovation classes, and Blue Sky Biotech gets off the ground. Now where's the money going to come from? Now in many countries, the first money comes from the government. Right. They, they'll fund a small A round. I know, but we know that doesn't last. It's not, it doesn't go far enough. Because it's nothing, they're not bridging it to anywhere. Yeah, yeah. 
And so the, the availability of high-risk venture capital is critical. The, it's changing in Europe, but it used to be that you know the venture capitalists all had degrees in finance and economics, but they didn't understand science. Mm -hmm. Whereas you come here and the early stage venture capitalists have PhDs in signal processing or yeah. immunology or whatever. That makes a big difference yeah. in the ability to evaluate what you're going to do. So what you want, what you what you want is to get this money that's sort of sitting in banks or whatever out or, being put to or work. in mining corporations, yeah, yeah. yeah, getting put to work in, as a sort of pseudo family office almost in in foreign countries, right? But with people who understand yeah. how to do early stage venture work, yeah, that's a good idea. I've never yeah. heard that before. I mean, it's almost like feeling that all this money is frozen under the tundra. And if they get the, as you said, like the, the disease of wanting to do this. Oh, and it is a disease. You come to this school and you catch well, let, entrepreneurship. I want to talk about that too, because um, I think it was actually on that panel. We were talking and someone said, how do you actually, you know, how do you foster innovation? And I said, I'm not, what I don't think you do is you make sure there's an incubator space and Which is a probably tax break. the least important. Right. They're, they're nice, but that, that doesn't do it. What you really need is a bunch of people who want to start companies. And how you get that going, I don't know. Role models, role models, role models. Certainly among the faculty. When you, let's say you're an assistant professor in biology and you went somewhere else to school, and you think, I'm a scientist. That's all I wanted to do. Or maybe I even want to cure cancer. And then the guy next to you has started a company, having great fun, earning money. And he says to you, don't you want to do something besides just publish papers? Yeah. Well, I don't know how to do it. Look, come to dinner tomorrow. I'm having somebody from Polaris over venture capital. I think you ought to talk to him. And Ditto, if you're a student here, you've easily met 20 people, students and faculty, who've started companies. Oh, God, if they can do it, I can do it. You don't have, not these rare, a lot of times they have these big shots come and talk, and you sound like you have to either be, I don't know, uh, Bill Gates or Superman to form a company, as opposed to seeing bright, forgive me, ordinary humans do yep. it. Right, so you have people like Bob Langer, for instance, at MIT, right? Yeah, he's a well, he's example. such a super role model, but you got lots of, of others. others. Yeah, yeah. It's, I think I, I remember talking to um, as a Chinese researcher. He'd been in Steve Quake's lab, okay, and he'd gone back to China and started a company. And I said, you know, had you not been in Steve Quake's lab, he's quite translational. Would you have started a company? He said, I don't think so. Like he he'd seen it got the disease, as you just called it, and went back and started a company, right? Because yeah. he'd been shown the way and understood the value yeah, of it. exactly. Yeah. Assuming there's money at the end of the thing. Otherwise, yeah. you're going to spend years being frustrated. Yeah, so you do need those two things. You need the, the we're going to call it the disease of wanting to start companies, but you do have to have money available. Yeah, yeah those and two things. And the disease, and then followed it, the education. Yeah. Well, you don't necessarily need entrepreneurial education but it sure helps yeah um, I think I read someplace that you had said that startups need to be supported but what they really need to be is celebrated 
Well, that's part of the role model stuff. That is absolutely, and it somehow celebrated not just in terms of how much money, money the, yeah. the, the big house in Concord, uh, but in terms of look at the change they made in the world. Right. Which I, I think isn't done as well as it could be. No, no, I don't think so either. I mean, I think, uh, well, there's been a lot of discussion about Moderna lately and yeah. that the founders are now billionaires or whatever. And I'm thinking that that's part of it, but also you need to think about what they just did scientifically, right? These two right. things. Right, absolutely. And yeah, I mean, absolutely. And of course, the craziness, this was going, well, not counting the NIH fight about who was an inventor. Yeah. But so let's not do Moderna, let's do another one. But this work was supported by the, the, you know, the National Science Foundation. Grants. Why don't we get some of the money back? Why doesn't, this comes up with the government all the time. Yeah. And, you know, first of all, most tech transfer offices don't break it even. Second of all, the amount of money involved, you couldn't find it in the rounding error of the, of the government. Of the government, yeah, right, yeah, government yeah. finance. So it's ridiculous. A few get lucky, but that makes more people try. But so this, the idea of celebrating startups means that you have to be okay with failure. Absolutely. You have to embrace failure. And I, I feel like sometimes a bit of Europe sometimes is still a little scared of that. Oh, yeah. I mean, it makes it makes sense to me now that, given how restless you were, that tech transfer was a good place for you. Yeah. But did you you still must not imagine that you would spend 30 years here. No, but it kept growing and changing, and I had a lot of opportunities to learn about other countries. I spent uh, six weeks as part of an MIT program with the University of Cambridge. I helped form, well, my, yeah, I guess I co-formed with my friend, uh, Praxis, which is the UK nonprofit company for training tech transfer people, now part of Praxis Oral. David uh, Secker at the University of Cambridge was my co-founder. He got a Queen's Award, and I got an MBE out of it, so clearly the government thought it was important. That's, um, that's the order of the British... The, it's the lowest rank, of course, <laughs> the member of the British Empire. So I, I have one more question that I want to ask you, and it's something that I think a lot about, too, because I've had conversation with people who, like, they cannot find venture capital money, and they yeah. are 100% sure that they have a great idea, but yeah. they just can't find it, and why not? And it, it has to deal with this culture. And, and the, the question is, do, is there a point where um, maybe too many people think that they actually have a company worth starting? Well, of course there are people who have crazy ideas or yeah. ones that aren't worth investing in yeah. or, or don't have a big enough market yeah. to justify. I remember the <laughs> guy came in with this fancy machine for measuring something in ast astrophysics. And I, oh, lots of people would want it. Well, who? Well, the major astrophysics departments, like six. In the world. Yeah. <laughs> or anyway, in the United States. So I explained to him that it was indeed a great contribution to science, but not something we could form a company around, yeah. So sometimes the idea is what you need, if you're lucky enough in a university, to help 
we don't screen the companies with a with a, in sandbox. No, not at all. We lead the students to figure whether they've really got something or maybe ought to drop it. You're not expected to, su to succeed. You're expected to learn, and a few succeed. I see. So it's not as if you actually um, turn ideas away. You lead people down the path until they decide whether it's a good idea or not. And the reason is we want them coming back with the next one because these are bright people. And if you can train them as to what's needed and what you need to have before anyone's going to try to to advance it, since so many people now, particularly in the engineering world and maybe in the science world too, you know, engineering was sometimes getting a bad reputation. And the reason is because you, you study hard, you're very smart, you work hard, and then you get laid off. Yeah. Almost every engineer has gone through a layoff. Me too. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, young high school students say, why would I do that when Mr. Jones, he's, a, he's an engineer and he just lost his job and they had to give his second car away. And so students want to make their own jobs now. Yeah. It used to be, well, let's go work at the big IBM or whatever, the big Ford or whatever Absolutely. it was. Absolutely. And, and if you wanted to go join Pink Sky Electronics, your mother said, hi. It's so risky. Yeah. But what's happened, this would be better on television, but what's happened is the relative risk of Pink Sky Electronics and IBM. They've evened out. Well, mostly the risk of IBM of getting laid off well, has off, come right. off. Right. You know, when, when AT&T started laying people off, the telephone company never laid anybody off. The social contract cracked, maybe was broken. Yeah, and of course we've seen that pharma's laid off, you know, legions of researchers over the over the past exactly. ten or fifteen years. And it didn't matter how smart you were, exactly. or how much you had done. Uh, along those lines, um, so at one point, maybe even I think MIT was spinning out something like twenty-five companies a year. We were licensing twenty-five. I don't know how many were spinning out because we didn't own the IP or it right. went out the back Right, right. Door. The ones that you knew of are 25. And that's probably maybe evenly split between physical sciences and life science, yeah, roughly, yeah, right? roughly. So in your career, you have seen hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of startups. Are there any that really stand out? I mean, some that stand out here are ones that... Al Nylum. Yeah. Bluebird Bio. Akamai. You know, the ones that have become major companies. Yeah. They didn't always make us money. In the yeah. case of Bluebird and Moderna, uh, they were gene therapy. And Bluebird got its first product out, I think it was 26 years after the license, so the patent had expired. Yeah. I didn't know that they had been, I didn't know the patent was that old for Bluebird. Well, the, the MIT patent, they have yeah. many new ones. Yeah, yeah, here. no, but the, like the yeah. founding patent, I, I guess. Right, I say. and the founding patent at El Nylum was 21 years it had expired huh. uh so so impact not not income yeah yeah because those have impact for sure yeah for sure absolutely but if you go back to approximately 1985 or even later there was not one single 
pharmaceutical company in the state of Massachusetts. Uh, you mean it had no presence here? No presence. No research center or anything like that? Nothing. Now it's lousy with them. It's amazing. Yeah, it's truly lousy with it lunch. You can't, you can't go out for I lunch a without, here, yeah. without yeah. finding three big ones right yeah. here. Well, guess why? Well, that's well. We know why. That's biotech. Part, yeah. It's bio. I mean, they partly it's to uh, recruit talent, but that's true because they need talent if they're going to be able to start working with bio. <laughs> yeah. But now, I mean, there's hardly a a world, an internationally oriented pharmaceutical company that's not in Cambridge. Yeah. Or maybe Boston now. Yeah. Uh, you know, there, there's this sort of, I, I've never liked this narrative, but this sort of dueling, is it the Bay Area or Boston, which one has more biotechs or whatever. And when that happened, all, all the farmers said, well, we're kind of going to put our offices here. That's sort of pushed the Cambridge area into the stratosphere. Well, of course, we're a hell of a lot closer to Europe. Yeah, also that. Yeah. Uh, that's all I had. Anything that I, anything you want to talk about that I, maybe I've missed? No, thank you. No, I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks for making the time. I enjoyed it too. And read the book. Yeah, I will. I definitely will. I will. Okay, there it is. Your first Rounders podcast with Lita Nelson. Uh, My thanks to Lita for hosting me at MIT and uh, just being a good host and having a great conversation. I really, really appreciated it. If you have comments on this podcast or our sister podcast forum, or our series, our podcast series, Hope, Lies, and Dreams, or anything that Nature Biotech does, you can find us on Twitter. Our handle is at Nature Biotech, and you can speak to us there. The next First Rounders will be out, well, it'll be out in 2022, that's for certain. So uh, I won't tell you who the guest is, but look for that, and that's it. I'll talk to you later. Thank you, and goodbye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.